Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, thank you, Katie McDaniel. Well, it's, um, it's really hard to believe that we're in Advent. I, I really do feel like it was September, like yesterday. It's very strange to me that we're here and we're singing Christmas songs, and, but here we are. And, um, but I love it. I love this time of year. It's one of my favorite times of year. I love the cold. I love the, I love sweaters. I love the lights. I love that it's soup season. I love that this is the time of year where there's this massive influx of sweets and baked goods into the house. I love um, Christmas movies. You know, it, probably in the next week or so, we will, we will watch Elf. We will watch Home Alone. We will watch Die Hard. We, we will... Um, uh, and we, I love the Christmas music. I love, like, it's kind of our tradition as well that we'll put on a Christmas album. We'll put on, you know, Sufjan or Bieber's Christmas album or Amy Grant's Christmas album and, and decorate the house together, which I know it always, it starts to butt up against this age-old question and this debate that we've all had, which is when is it appropriate to actually listen to and sing Christmas music? Because there are some people, hardcore people, that will say, well, you should only sing and celebrate Christmas during Christmas, which was actually just the 12 days of Christmas. That Advent is not when you sing and celebrate. Advent is about darkness and longing and waiting, and then you celebrate for the 12 days of Christmas. You know, that's fair. There's some history there. Some people say you can, you can only bust out the Christmas stuff. You can bust it out after Thanksgiving, but no, no, no time before that. Some people push it back to Halloween, you're allowed post-Halloween. Some of you crazies are year-round Christmas people, just rocking around the Christmas tree in May or whenever you, whenever you do it. But regardless of your take on the debate, there is this season right now that we're in where everybody's kind of collectively singing and putting on the Christmas songs. And in the spirit of singing Christmas songs, uh, for this season of Advent, I want to look at what may be the earliest, the oldest Christmas songs that there are. 
in, in the book of Isaiah, this, this Hebrew scripture, Old Testament book, there's a collection of songs there called the Servant Songs. And they're all about this mysterious figure called the Servant of the Lord. And this person's identity is not made explicit. It's just the servant of the Lord. And so there's all this historical debate and scholarship of what is this? Who, who is Isaiah talking about? Some people say, well, the servant of the Lord is really just a personification of the people of Israel. It's just the community of faith boiled down into one person, the servant of the Lord. Uh, some people say, well, no, it's, it was actually a contemporary in Isaiah's day. It was some hero, some kind of important figure in that time period. Some people say, no, it was this anticipation of somebody to come, this Messiah to come. And, and without getting into all of the scholarship of who is the servant of the Lord, the, the, the New Testament actually makes it fairly clear to us that the ultimate reference point for who this is talking about is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, this passage in Isaiah 42 is, is referenced, explicitly connecting the dots to Jesus. So these servant songs, the way we're going to look at them in the next couple of weeks, are, are ultimately Christmas songs. These are song of, songs about Jesus and the Messiah to come. And what's fascinating about them is that even though this passage that we just read was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth, they, it, it, it gives you a unique vantage point, a, a, a fascinating window into three things about Jesus. This passage shows you Jesus' mission. It gives you a window into Jesus' heart, and it gives you a window into Jesus' methods. And so those are the three big ideas that I want to look at with you this morning. His, his mission, his heart, his methods. So let's, let's look at these one at a time. The first is Jesus' mission, which is this question of what, what was Jesus' agenda? What did Jesus, what was, what was he trying to do? What was he here to do? And some people say, well, Jesus was primarily a teacher. He offered a, um, a different religious outlook. There was lots of different competing visions of wisdom and how you live your life. And his, this was his hot take on the whole thing. Here's how you should live your life. And it should be marked by love and whatever. And so, you know, his take on how you live. He's a teacher. And some people say, no, 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 no. Jesus was primarily a, a savior. He came to die. He came to die for people's sins. That's the whole purpose. Purpose. That's not his purpose. It's his purpose um, for why he came. And so, well, okay. There's actually truth. Both of those are true. But neither one of those is actually big enough to encapsulate what is kind of Jesus' overarching mission and agenda. But you see that in this passage. In fact, let me, let me show you. Look at verse, uh, well, you start in verse 1. This is talking about the servant, Jesus. He's chosen by God. He's delighted in by God. God has put his spirit upon him to do what, though? What will he do? Into verse 1. He will... Bring forth justice to the nations. And then you bounce down to verse 3. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Three times in four verses, pretty clear that Jesus' mission is to bring and establish justice on the earth. Now, what does that mean? 
Because when you and I hear the word justice, it's easy for us as modern Western people to just get pretty niche with that way of thinking, with, with a particular way of thinking, that justice really has to do with the legal realm. It has to do with you know, the scales of justice. We picture like a courtroom. So if somebody is accused of a crime, but they're innocent, and they're, they're, it's found out that they're innocent, and they're exonerated, justice was served, justice was done. And if they're accused of a crime and they're guilty of that crime and they're appropriately sentenced to that crime, we feel justice was done. That's what, when we think of justice, we think courtroom, we think legal stuff. To the Hebrew mind, justice was a, was a, a, a bigger category. It included legal stuff, sure, but it also included spiritual realities, social realities, personal realities, even global, like, cosmic realities. Justice is about healing people, places, things, relationships, institutions, systems, structures, so that everything is able to flourish again. It's about reordering, healing everything in the world. That's what's encapsulated in this idea of justice. Now, I was talking with a, um, a member of ours who's a doctor, and he was telling me about uh, some uh, work that he was doing and some research he was doing in the city, specifically about how kids in lower-income neighborhoods in Memphis um, have, a, have a complicated relationship with education. The kids in lower-income neighborhoods tend to drop out of school sooner or tend to skip a lot of school. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, why is this and how, how do we fix this? And one of the things that they figured out is that with lower-income kids, there's a, there's a disproportionately high rate of asthma, the breathing condition. So it's, it's, when it's hard to breathe, it's hard to concentrate in class. And so that's one of the contributing factors behind why there's, you know, challenges in the education system. So to address education in Memphis, you also have to address medical issues. But what's fascinating, he was telling me that, that one of the reasons why there's so much asthma in lower income, uh, kids from lower income families, is it actually has to do with inadequate housing. That if you have poorer, run-down, not well-kept-up housing. There's mold growing. There's other dangerous things growing that contribute to different kind of lung problems. So, okay, so now to um, address education issues, not only do you have to address medical issues, now you also have to address housing issues, which gets you into politics, and it gets you into history. It gets you into race. And you realize, okay, you want to take on one little, try to fix one little problem in our city. Let's just help kids stay in school more. And you realize that is connected to this, this nest of complicated, tangled up issues that are all interrelated on each other. When we think about justice, we think about, oh, let's just fix the, it's a legal issue. And biblically speaking, it's about Jesus untangling the whole knot, fixing the whole overwhelming, complicated not a nest of problems that we can't. That's what's in mind when the Bible has to, this, this vision of Jesus has come for, to establish justice, to reorder the world and to restructure it so that it's able to flourish. In fact, you, you get little glimpses of this even in this passage. Look at um, in verses five through seven, but zoom in on verse six. 
um, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you, talking to the servant. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, which covenants have to do with your relationship with God. Keep going. It says, a light for the nations, which you could say that's about preaching, that's about proclaiming spiritual realities to people who are far away from God. Verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, which is addressing medical needs, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, which you could say is addressing the criminal justice system. So you step back and say, okay, this is a multifaceted approach. This is a holistic approach to salvation. In fact, you see this in Jesus' own ministry. When Jesus shows up, he's literally opening the eyes of people. He's feeding the hungry. He's raising the dead. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's giving people faith. He's addressing spiritual needs and material and physical needs. He's, he's confronting unjust social structures. He's... he's doing everything. This is the work that he began in his ministry, and this is the work that he continues to do now through his church. If you've ever repositioned a plant beside a, uh, a window, you know, you, you kind of move it, you go away for a couple days. Whenever you come back, if you've noticed uh, that the, the plant starts to bend towards the, the, the light, you know what I'm talking about, where, where, where a plant will literally is, is, is repositioning itself. It's, it's bending towards the sun. There's this um, great quote from this book I'm reading right now by Tish Harrison Warren, and she says this, the believer's constant posture is to lean slightly forward in anticipation. That's the image. If you're a follower of Jesus, I don't presume everyone in here is, but if you're a follower of Jesus, the constant posture of us, not just during Advent, but throughout the year, throughout, the, throughout our, our whole life, is to lean forward, aching for Jesus to come and untangle the knot, to fix a city and a world that is so overwhelmingly devastated and broken, and the, the problems are so compounded, so confusing, we need somebody to come and fix this. This is why in just a few minutes we're about to sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. That's what we're longing for, for Jesus to come and to heal and to make right that which is so messed up. That's his mission. That's the agenda. His agenda is to heal and to bring justice to the entire world. Now, but there, there's, there's more here because it's, we don't just have a window into his mission and his agenda. We also have a, um, a window into his heart, into his, uh, into his very disposition. And you see that in verse uh, 3. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, this is, these are amazing images. A reed is a, it's a type of plant. It's like a water plant. It's basically just like this long, thin stalk. And, and a bruised reed is, is a reed that has, been, uh, that has been damaged, that's been bent, that's been broken. If you think about like a, taking a stem of a flower and snapping it, not so that it's in two different pieces, but it's just snapped and it's just kind of hanging on. That's what a bruised reed is. 
And that is an image for people who are bruised, broken, damaged, feeling like they're, they're just kind of hanging on by a thread. That even maybe technically speaking, they're intact, but inside they, they are, they're broken, they're injured, they're dying on the inside. That's the image. And it says that Jesus will not break a bruised reed. If you're going to handle something that is that fragile, you have to be extremely delicate. To, to not break something that is just hanging on by a thread, you have to be so gentle and so tender. And that's the image, that Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. And in fact, the, the, the next image kind of, it's a similar idea from a different angle. It says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You think about a candle that is just faintly burning. It is, it's just, the flame is just about to go out. It's just about to be extinguished. And you could say, this candle has kind of run its course. It's worthless. Let's snuff it out and throw it away. And it says that's not how Jesus relates to faintly burning wicks. He does not put them out. He does not quench it. He doesn't snuff them out, no matter how small of a light it's contributing to the world. No matter how little it's producing, Jesus doesn't discard it. He does not break bruised reeds or quench faintly burning wicks. That tender, that delicate, that gentle. Now, if you want to watch a video on the YouTubes this afternoon that will make you weep, I would recommend you watch this video. It's called Terrified and in Pain, Puppy's Amazing Transformation After Rescue. It's not a catchy title. You're not going to remember it. Um, but it's put out by a group called Animal Aid Unlimited in, in India. And what this group does is they go around and they rescue hurt animals. And there's this video of a terrified and in pain puppy who uh, they got notified about. And they're just filming on their phone. And they, they're, they're walking through the streets. And they come upon this bundle of blankets. And there's this puppy inside of it that's just been on the side of the road. And they come upon it, and, and the, 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 the head of the dog kind of sticks out, and it's shivering, and it, you can tell it's scared, and it's yelping. It's making this really like painful to hear whimpering, yelping noise. They give it some crackers to feed it. They, they start very gently petting its head, and they, they unwrap it from all this, this bundle of blankets that it's in, and you can see it, and it just it looks like a skeleton. It's this emaciated dog that's that has this kind of gross, it's a gray, it's a grayish color with these patchy patches of hair on it. It's got severe mange, it's got uh, an injured uh, leg, and so it can can barely stand up. It's just kind of shaking. It's 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 like a big gross-looking rat. And it's so pitiful, and it's yelping, and they're, and they're just so gently petting it, feeding it. They wrap it up in the blankets. They take it back to their headquarters. They um, give it a medical exam. They give it some pain medicine. They treat the, the injury on its back leg. They, they, they feed it some more. They take it to give it a big wash. And, and the whole time they're doing this, I'm, I'm struck by how tender they are with this thing. I mean, because it is just this, this pitiful, sad, skeletal little puppy yelping, crying the whole time, shaking, freaking out. They're so gentle, so delicate with it. 
and then the, the, the screen uh, fast forwards to six months, or sorry, six weeks later after being in their care and receiving treatment, what is this dog looking like six weeks from now? And the music comes on and it's all playful and fun. And then now you see this dog that is full and it has this beautiful black and white fur and it's, it's frolicking. Its tail is wild. It's romping around, playing with all of these children in the streets and the music is on and you're watching it and they, they, they tell you they named it Jumper. They named the, the dog Jumper, and um, you're watching this, and you're just weeping and just want to hold somebody. And, and I, I was watching this video and just thinking, that is the picture. That's the picture that you at least see, or, see here of how Jesus treats really fragile, really broken, really bruised people, so tender with them, so delicate with them. He, he is not harsh with them. He never mistreats us. He never speaks severely with us. He's never cruel towards us in the same way that we may have experienced from our own parents growing up. It is always delicate, tender, gentle. There's um, the year 2017 was maybe one of the hardest years of my life and my wife Catherine's life. It was a year where we were experiencing grief from loss. Uh, there were new and challenging medical diagnoses that we were, we were facing and were complicating our life. There was really intense marital strain. There was uh, pressure mounting from job stuff. It was kind of one of those seasons where I'm sure uh, you, you've been through to some degree where it just feels like the burdens are piling up and piling up and you kind of feel like you're at your, your breaking point. And uh, there was, uh, there's a passage in the Bible that I kept returning to uh, from 1 Kings chapter 19. I've shared this with some of you before because this passage was so meaningful to me during this season and the Lord really used it to minister to me. But it's a, it's a story about this guy named Elijah and Elijah feels like a total failure. The powers that be at the time were trying to kill him. And so he goes off into the wilderness by himself, just goes out into the desert, and he prays that God would take his life. It's this picture of somebody in utter despair, utter desperation. Is this a bruised reed? And God shows up and visits him in the form of this angel, and it's amazing what God does. The first thing it does, it says that God touches him, which feels so um, unnecessary. It's, 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 a, it's a superfluous thing to just, but, but it's, it, the, the Lord touches him as a way to gently reassure him, hey, I'm with you. I'm right here with you. And then what the Lord does, I'm not joking, you can look this up, 1 Kings 19, God bakes him a cake. He says, it's like he's, it's like he's saying, Elijah, I know what you need right now, carbs, and I will provide that for you. And Elijah eats, and then he takes a nap, and the Lord just waits, and he wakes up, he does it again. And then the, and then the Lord says this in this conversation, he says, the journey is too great for you. And it was this, um, this validation from God saying, yeah, there's a lot. There's a, the journey has become too much for you. 
He validates his experience. And, and, and as I was going through my own season of feeling overwhelmed and despair and, and desperate, that story was so meaningful to me because it reminded me, this is how the Lord relates to me. In these moments where I'm feeling utter, utterly fragile, he's not irritated by the fact that I'm fragile. He's not disappointed that I can't get it together and manage and just do more. He draws near. He assures me that he's with me. He gives me permission to take care of myself, to eat some cake, take a nap. He validates my experience. The journey has become too much for you. I needed to know in that season that that's how God actually relates to me. And maybe you need to know that as well right now. Maybe you're in that place today where you're feeling like, I'm hanging on by a thread. I don't know if God is there. I don't know if he's there, if he's disappointed, if he's scolding me, if he's upset with me. Let the Bible speak into your own experience and say, he does not break bruised reeds. He is incredibly gentle and tender and delicate with people who are hanging on by a thread. And I'll say this, final thought on this before we move on. Over the years, I've had countless conversations with people who have entrusted their stories to me, where they've told me things about themselves that they hate or that they don't like, things that they've done that they regret, that they're disappointed in, things about themselves. And as they're, as they're processing their failures or their, or their disappointments or their regrets with me, I will notice often in those conversations that as they're telling their story, they'll also say things like this. I'm such an idiot. I, I know, I, I, I knew better and I didn't do it. I know I should have. I should have been praying more. I should have loved God more, I know. I'm such a screw up. And, and you just hear this way that they talk about themselves that is so harsh and so cruel and, and I, I will try to stop them and gently speak into that and say something like, I just want you to know Jesus would never speak to you the way that you're speaking to yourself right now. You're being harder on yourself than the God of the universe is. And I don't, I don't say that just to give you one more reason to feel shame of, oh, I screwed up again. I know, no, it's, it's, I just don't want you to be harsher on yourself than Jesus is. And I think that's really important for us to remember. If this is how God relates to us, if this is how Jesus relates to us, then maybe we, should be, we shouldn't be harder on ourselves than Jesus is. Incredibly kind, incredibly gentle, incredibly patient. He does not break Bruce Reed's. He does not quench faintly burning wicks. Now, that's his heart, but if you take... Point one, and you take point two and you put them next to each other, it can be a little confusing because point one is Jesus is going to come and establish justice and fix everything. And then point two is he's really gentle and mild and humble and patient. And you think tender, gentle people don't really accomplish stuff, much less worldwide overhauls. So how does that work? How does Jesus' tenderness, gentleness do anything? Well, we've got to look at this last thing. Jesus' methods. And to get into Jesus' methods, I want you to look at verse 4 real quick. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he establishes 
justice. Now, I didn't know this until I really looked into this and studied this, but the, the word for grow faint there is the same Hebrew word, the exact same Hebrew word that you find in verse 3 about faintly burning wick. And the word discouraged, he will not grow faint or be discouraged, is the same exact Hebrew word as the word bruised that you find in verse 3. So you can't really see this in English, but verse 4 is intentionally mirroring verse 3, which means this, that Jesus experiences the same things that we do, that he will be bruised. He will be right on the edge of being snuffed out. He, he will be crushed, but it will not stop him from establishing justice. And in fact, you find this out as you kind of zoom out and you understand the whole Bible as a, as a whole, him being bruised, him being crushed is actually the very means by which he establishes justice. He heals the world, not despite being bruised and crushed and snuffed out. He heals the world through being healed and cr bruised and crushed and being snuffed out. There's this, um, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, there's this uh, weird cryptic thing that God says right after Adam and Eve rebel against God and, and the whole world, the whole good world that God created kind of unravels into sin and death and disease. And God, if you remember, he comes up to the, ser the serpent and tells the serpent, okay, one day Eve is going to have a great, 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 great grandson, and he's going to be born, and he's going to crush your head. He's going to step on your face and crush your skull. But his heel will be bruised, same word, will be bruised in the process. He'll crush your head, you'll bruise his heel. It's this kind of weird cryptic thing. And, and then you realize, oh, what, what, is, what does that actually mean? Let's say you're with a group of people and you're hanging out with your friends, your family, people that you love, and up slithers this deadly, venomous, poisonous snake. And if you want to protect the people that you love, all you can do is step on this snake. But of course, when you step on it, its fangs are going to get into your foot. And the venom and the poison is going to get into you. And you're going to die to save and to protect your people. That's the image that Genesis has given you of what this servant who is going to be bruised has come to do, that Jesus is going to come and he is going to crush the head of evil. He will establish justice, but the way that he's going to do it is through injustice and the venom of sin and evil is going to get him first and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. His method for healing the world always comes through suffering with the world and for the world that he has come to heal. In fact, let me give you maybe a more vivid image of this. There's a, there's a story that um, I heard uh, a couple of years ago. It's from a book called To End All Wars. It's a World War II book. It's about this prison camp in Burma. And the prison camp was mostly populated by British airmen and it was a Japanese-run camp, and there's all these prisoners there, and apparently the conditions were terrible. They were forced into manual labor. They were building some railroad. 
there was all this disease and malaria and there was infighting and everybody was starting to kind of lose it with each other and so people would get in fights or steal money or medicine from each other. These are the prisoners stealing money or sorry, stealing uh, medicine or food from each other. They would turn each other in and, and get special favors. And w- one of the stories was they were out on some work assignment doing something, and when they come back into the camp, the, the, the Japanese soldiers get furious because they, they had counted all of the shovels that they were using on their work assignment, and they realized that one of the shovels was missing. And so they line up all these prisoners that were out there that day, and they say, which one of you stole the shovel? I'm going to line you up, and I'm going to shoot you and execute every single last one of you until one of you steps forward and tells me who did it. And the commander goes to the first guy in the line and cocks his gun. And right as he's about to shoot, somebody from further down the line steps forward and says, it was me. It was me. And the commander goes over, shoots him, executes him. His body crumples on the ground. The crowd is dispersed. They go back and they recount the shovels. And they realize they had miscounted. That all the shovels had been there all along. They'd all been accounted for. But somebody stepped forward to assume responsibility. Somebody who was innocent stepped forward to assume responsibility so that his friends, who had actually treated him more like an enemy, would be spared. And Jesus is the one human being in all of human history that steps forward and says, it was me. God, it was all me. All of the murder, all the violence, all of the abuse, all of the, all of the self-righteousness, all of it, all of the racism, all of the, all of the pain, it was all me. I'm responsible. I did it all. Completely innocent and yet assumes responsibility and God takes all of his justice and all of his wrath against that, dumps it on him and his body crumples on a cross. He gets bruised. He gets broken so that the ones he loves might be saved. And so that you might know, so that we might know that verse one in this uh, passage also applies to you, that you are God's chosen in whom his soul delights. If you're a bruised reed, what you need to hear more than anything is that you are someone in whom God delights. So much so that he would send his son Jesus to bear the penalty for the injustice that you and I contribute to every single day. So much so that God would even raise this Jesus and establish a kingdom to where bruised reeds are actually healed and beginning to be healed. And broken cities and broken systems and a broken world could be restored. Last thought, and then I'm done. Thanks for blowing that out. I think it was about to burn something. Advent is this, um, Advent means coming. It's the season where we wait, we long for Jesus to come and to finish this work of healing that he started with his life and death and resurrection. And as we wait for that day, I think what's most, what I, what I want you to hear from this passage is that we all are, bro- are bruised reeds. And as we wait, he is gentle with us, that he suffers with us, that he has suffered for us. And one day, someday, he, he will bring to completion the work that he began.
and he will establish justice and the world will, will be made right. That is our hope and that is the good news of Advent. We pray. Let's pray. Father, as we pause and consider how you relate to us in our fragility, in our weakness, as we consider how you relate to a world that has been overwhelmed with problems and complications, problems that we can never really get to the bottom of, problems that uh, are so tangled up together, as we are overwhelmed in this and feel our limitations and feel our weakness and feel the ways that we contribute to the mess of the world, I pray that you would stoke in us a flame of anticipation for the life of the world to come, that we would cry, come thou long expected Jesus, mend what is broken in us, gently, tenderly restore and bring back to life that which is bruised in us and heal and restore our world and make all things new. This is our hope. This is our prayer. And we lay, lay it before your throne, pleading for mercy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.